Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. And welcome back to the podcast. Saul Marquez here. And today I have the privilege of having Dr. Sharat Kusuma. He's an orthopedic surgeon board-certified and fellowship-trained orthopedics in hip and knee. Now, I will say this. He's got an extensive level of experience, and today, Sharat comes to us to express his thoughts and his opinions in healthcare. With with several decades of experience in the space, he's going to share a lot of great insights, and I'm excited to have that conversation with him. Uh, Prior to doing what he does now, he was a senior engagement manager at McKinsey & Company, in the healthcare provider, provider, payer, pharma, and medtech space. Over his career, he had the opportunity to work deeply in nearly all areas of healthcare, payers, providers, pharma, medtech vendors, and academia. So the conversation we're going to have today is going to be fun. It's going to be dynamic, and it's going to be with an individual that's had a breadth of experience that you guys are going to enjoy. So, uh, Sharat, with that intro, I want to just welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for joining Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity uh, to join, and uh, yeah, I commend you on you know establishing this podcast. It's a very cool topic to be uh, to, to talk about. Hey, thank you, Sharat. Now, did I miss anything in your intro that you would add, or anything in general that you want to add to to uh, to how I opened about you? I mean, I mean, the only thing I would share and uh, that I that sort of it's, it's been funny in, in my uh, in my. Uh, Short thus far business career of only four years now after having left clinical practice, the the, the value of sort of having spent you know six or seven years uh, after completing training is that what we you know call an attending surgeon or an attending physician sort of in the foxhole right uh, on the front lines. That experience is so invaluable uh, in terms of your at least in my opinion in terms of one's ability to conceptualize and sort of deliver. A real product uh, that, that's useful. So I, I, that experience was also very formative and, and, and critical, you know, for me. So uh, I would add, I would just add that you know the clinical experience was, was a huge part of my career and identity and, and also uh, success in business as well. So no, oh, really great call out, uh, Sharad. Glad you brought that up. And for sure, you know, a lot of a lot of decisions, a lot of products are being innovated in healthcare in a vacuum. And, and and it shouldn't be that way. So so before we dive into the to the nuts and bolts here, what got you into healthcare to begin with? Yeah, so I mean, I have a pretty traditional story. You know, I, I'm Indian, of course, as you know, uh, first generation Indians. Uh, a lot of I think the statistic is, you know, Indians are about less than one percent of the America's population, but are about twenty five percent of physicians, right? So we're twenty five times yep. more. Uh, and so I, you know, I came from a family. My father's a surgeon. My brother's a surgeon. My cousin's a surgeon. So you know, it's sort of in my blood, I suppose, mm-hmm. to go into healthcare. And I, I will tell stories of, you know, as a child, admiring my dad. You know, getting up on weekends on Saturday morning to go make rounds, and you know, I love sitting and hearing him take phone calls and you know, hearing words like hemoglobin. I didn't know what that meant when I was seven <laughs> years old, but I thought it was cool that these <laughs> yeah. people are calling my dad, and so I, I was always. That is yeah, cool. fascinated. And then, uh, so yeah. And then of course the last story I'll tell, it's very, it was very formative for me. My dad made me work as an orderly mm. in the operating room when I was okay. in high school in the summer. And, and so I was basically mopping, you know, bloody floors and oh, wow. you know, picking up dirty. And, and, and that was a, an experience that really, uh, I just loved surgery. I thought it was the coolest thing to be able to, 
you know, manipulate the body in a short time and make a big, um, so yeah, it was an easy decision for me. And I, I loved my surgical career was an amazing, amazing part of my life. Sure. It's super cool, um, that your dad did that. And, um, despite the mopping of blood and everything like that, you still decided to stick with it. So that's, I did that. That's a testament to, to what, what, you know, drives you and, and, and that line that, uh, that's been in your family. And so, uh, what would you say today, Sharat? Uh, you, you know, you've had the opportunity to look at things as a clinician, as a surgeon, as as a consultant, and as a tech, uh, you know, side person. Now, now, what would you say as a hot topic that needs to be on every health leader's agenda, and how would you approach it? Hmm, so, a pretty open ended question, I suppose. So, you're saying sort of what are just general hot topics, whether tech or not? I just want to make sure I understand the question. Sure. For example, today, let's just say, for example, healthcare leaders in the provider space, okay, they're running their system. What what do they need to be thinking about? What's the number one thing that you would say to a hospital CEO? This is important. That's that's very helpful. And sort some of my answer will be a little bit sort of colored by my specialty as an orthopedic surgeon. But I would say, uh, I'll say two things, right? And 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 the first one's going to be sort of the shift to outpatient. Surgery. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but let me. I'll get a little more into the details of sort of what's driving that and how the, how that could be a big trend that could go unnoticed by, as you say, sort of the standard you know hospital system administrators and and, and uh, leaders. Number one, and then number two, I think improving. You know, again, in, in the tech industry, they have one of these terms: UI, UX, you know, user interface, user experience. I think that UX component, and I mean that in sort of all of its manifestations. Are the two things. So I guess I can start with the first. If you look at specialties, especially such as orthopedics, people know that for the last 20 years we've been doing things like arthroscopy and you know putting ligaments back in place and doing shoulder arthroscopy. You know, as an outpatient for for many many years. You know, right? That there's nothing, you know, nothing new about that. They have right. been done in ambulatory surgery centers for, for many many years. However. If you told uh, you know one of the leading hip and knee surgeons from 20 years ago that in 2018 we would be doing you know three to four percent, and it depends on who you ask on the numbers, but it's a number that's meaningful. It's not zero, it's not 50, but you know it's certainly a no- measurable number. We'd be doing you know three to four percent of total joints in this country in an in a, in a building that is not in a hospital that's separate from a hospital, and they, they would think you're absolutely crazy. And yeah, you know the, the, because you know. 20 years ago, people spent seven days in the hospital after a, a standard knee replacement. And, you know, what we've learned over the last, you know, let's just say 10 to 12 years or so is that it's actually entirely safe in a lot of the population to do a knee replacement in an ASC and have somebody home for dinner. And, you know, of course, there are some clinical benefits, uh, and we can talk about those, but let's not forget, you know, physicians, and I'll be very transparent and blunt in this interview, that's okay. I mean, just like all other, and there's no no need to apologize for this. Physicians have financial incentives and motives and want to be successful financially, just like anyone else, and any lawyers or investment bankers or, you know, med device people. So the economics of the ASC total joints, I'm glad to go in as much detail as you want, are also driving physicians to move away from a hospital where they have very little control over the workflow and the economics into an ASC where they have almost complete control in many situations. So that's trend number one that I think if I was a CEO of whatever, Intermountain Health or Partners Healthcare, you know, whatever, that I would 
I would consider number one. The second thing on the UX and the UI for the patients and the doctors, here's what I mean by that. Taking knee replacements as an example, right? Or taking, you know, plastic surgery, elective, you know, let's say, you know, uh, cosmetic surgery as an example. The way we practice medicine today is people come in for follow-up visits uh, after the surgery simply by convention, right? I mean, if you'll say, you know, Saul, you're a healthy, healthy young man and, you know, heaven forbid you need a hip replacement at your young age, but it does happen. Mm -hmm. And let's say you live a couple of hours away from my office. There's no clinical need for me to have you come into my office at day at day 14 after surgery simply because you had surgery. I mean, I could certainly right. digitize that entire experience using a wearable and a camera and really improve. And so when I say UI and UX, I mean, there are multiple you know roads we could go. But, but I would say that there's a lot of operational efficiency to be had and in terms of just pure patient satisfaction. And, and what I find is that... Um, and back to the whole clinical thing, and I don't mean to sound paternalistic or anything when I say this, but I think you have to have a pretty rich clinical experience to know exactly what product you build, how it would work in order to create value in that UI UX. And, you know, there's just no way you can know that unless you unless you've lived it. And so that's where I think the two big sources of value are, you know, in surgical care, which is a big uh, component of expense for us, right, in, in 20, uh, 2018, 2019. So those are my two sort of insights on that. I think very, mm-hmm. very insightful, uh, Sherrod. So thanks for for sharing that. And yeah, you know, when we when we think about the user experience, user interface in healthcare, there's definitely a lot of opportunity to to think through process, to think through location, or should I or should I not go? recently had a had a uh, guy from uh, a firm that uh, they said they looked at the 30-day uh, readmit problem and they said rather than focus on the back 30 days why don't we focus on the first 30 days before the the surgery and sure and that's another I didn't, I didn't allude to that but yeah I'm yeah, sorry to interrupt but that's a no, perfect insight when you talk more about that for sure but I'd love to hear the rest of your story though uh yeah, no, no. Bottom line is this: is like is is going back to your point. I just mentioned that one to illustrate this this interface, this experience needs to be examined deeper. Uh, and right. It, yeah. So anyway, just to just to kind of uh, carry on with your example, uh, that 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 one guest that I had on, uh, David Brown from Vox. But yeah, you know, oh, so, sure, sure. Yeah, taking a look at these things, Sharad, you know, just curious about what you've seen. Maybe there's an example you want to talk about of how it can can these leaders make things better. Uh, maybe you talk about something that you've done. Yeah, so let me share with you. I mean, I'll give you sort of a use case, and I think it'll immediately resonate with. So again, I'll talk about a subject near and dear to my heart, which you know is now ubiquitous. You know, hip and knee replacement is something you know we do about a million point one point two million procedures in America a year. So everybody knows ten people, right? Their aunts, uncles, grandparents, you know, maybe even their friends who've had this procedure. Let's talk a little bit about how that works today. And I'll just say, and even myself as a doctor, I've delivered this crappy user experience to my own patients and I have always wanted to make it better. And now, now you know, and that's why I, hopefully I can have some credibility that, you know, I've actually, so let, let's just kind of, here's how it goes, right? Sure. So, you know, you're Saul Marquez, young, healthy man. You, you had a childhood injury in your hip and you come into my office and you say, Hey, Dr. Kasuma, you know, I want to, I've had a lot of hip pain. Uh, I've been considering having a hip replacement. 
Well, if you have a pretty standard experience today in terms of, let's say you show up at the office of a very busy hip replacement or hip knee replacement surgeon, you're going to walk in the office and my, my waiting room will be full of you know, 20, 30 people. And I will probably on average, if you look at the numbers, we'll have five minutes to spend with you face-to-face given sort of how my workflow and my day is to actually talk to you, maybe 10, right? Depending on yeah. how efficient I am to make the, to make this huge decision of whether or not you're going to have a hip replacement, which is a big decision, right? I mean, it's a huge thing to consider. Now, of course, you've been thinking about it as the patient yourself, but I, the doctor, don't have you know years of data about your mobility, you know, prior to you coming to my office. I just have your history that you give me over five. You understand? Does that does that kind of make sense? What I'm absolutely what I'm sharing. And so, and then, so we make this decision, and then, okay, we're going to schedule a surgery saw for 45 days from now. Well, during that 45 days. The current UI UX is that you have very little contact with my office on a day-to-day basis. You know, you, and, and if you haven't been through this, the listeners who've had friends or family who've been through something like a hip or knee replacement, this will immediately resonate, but I'll try to make it real for them, for others who don't have that experience. And that 45 days from, you know, let's say today is December 17th, I'm going to do your surgery on whatever, January 23rd, right? Mm-hmm. In those days... I don't have a lot of engagement with you as a, as a, as a patient. And that, that's tragic because this is an elective non-emergency surgery, right? You don't, it's yes. not, you know, you're not going to the OR in five minutes. We've got all that time that we could use tech to, and I'll be more specific momentarily to educate you, to get you comfortable, to measure, you know, measure all kinds of things. And our, in our sort of traditional system, we've essentially squandered that entire opportunity by simply doing a few steps and scheduling you for surgery. And, and it's just unfortunate. And so part of my passion, some of the work we've done is sort of try to use that time, both before you see me in the office, you know, that hopefully get a couple of years of data before I see you, and then use that time in the 45 days before surgery to really make a better informed decision about number one, should you have the surgery at all? And number two, if you're going to have it, what can we do to sort of measure and optimize your pre-op status, as you alluded to earlier, to, to, to have you have a better outcome afterwards, right? And I'm glad to go into specifics, you know, depending on how specific you want to get. But that's some of the area where the UI UX can really improve. And there's a, there, again, there's just a lot of room for improvement there, right? Do you want me to get more specific on some, some things or do you want to ask some questions? No, you know what? I think I think that's really good. And and as we as we think through some of these things, it'd be interesting to 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 understand. So have you have you run any process improvement around this and 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 what results have you seen if you have? Yeah. So so let me just make again give you a real tangible example, right? Yeah. A part of the reason that people's recovery, let's just say, from a hip or knee replacement is considered by most people to be quote unquote difficult is really because they've had no sort of education or prep or they've had some but not sufficient prep or education prior to the procedure so once the procedure is done they sort of find themselves with all these unknowns right about you know how much is it supposed to hurt how much am i supposed to walk on you know today today's my third day after surgery i just got home what can i do this morning you know after i've had breakfast can i walk 10 feet can i walk you know in real time patients have so many questions that we have so let me give you an example you can imagine a world, and this is some of the work that we've worked on, and this has all been sort of, you know, uh, shared publicly as well. You know, the, the Apple Watch has all these amazing functions where it can really pull, you know, sort of collect a lot of biometric, you know, what we'll call digital biometric data on patients, right? So, for example, again, let's go back to the example of Saul Marquez is in my office. You're a healthy guy in your mid-30s, you know, who needs a hip replacement. 
what I can do. Let's imagine a universe where you've been wearing a, something like an Apple Watch for the last two years. And I could immediately pull up your activity data and say, hey, you know, Mr. Marquez, I can see your activity trend over the last two years. It shows that you, you, you know, you've declined your number of daily steps on average by 5% per month over the last two years. We've learned, and this is obviously, I'm guessing, due to your hip pain, and we've also noticed that you don't climb stairs as much as you used to two years ago. Uh, and we've also noticed, by the way, that you know, when you are climbing stairs, your heart rate is higher than it used to be. So these are little data points that let me know that you are going to do well with a hip replacement because I can tell from your activity mm-hmm. that you're pretty restricted, right? And yep. then, so that's kind of, that, so that imagine that paradigm versus what I described to you earlier where you walk in my office and I have a five-minute history and I look at an x-ray and say, hey, Saul, let's do your hip. You know, that, that's a whole yeah. different decision-making, right? Okay, that's, and then imagine in the 45 days before the surgery, leading up to the surgery, instead of you doing a bunch of paperwork and, you know, filling out forms and all that, we use a device like the Apple Watch to sort of uh, measure your activity. And also maybe we could digitize all the physical therapy that you're going to do after surgery so that we could actually have the, the watch and the phone sort of teach you what it's going to do, uh, what you're going to do after surgery by, by giving you sort of reminders and engagement, things like that. Imagine a world where you're spending that 45 days with an activity tracker that's helping you learn how to do the physical therapy you will do after your surgery. Right. I mean, that, that's a that's a new paradigm where we're not wasting all that time. And I'm actually using those 45 days to teach you everything you need to know through the, you know, through the activity tracker, plus the, you know, the content that we can video content or, or simulation content we can display on the phone. That's a very different paradigm than we've had, you know, in the past. And then, of course, then after your surgery, you're now are very comfortable with your physical. You've learned all your therapy exercises because you've been, you know, you've been doing them every day for the 45 days leading up to the surgery. And we've also been tracking your activity. Now we can say, hey, Mr. Marquez, look, it's 10 days since your surgery. You already improved your step count, your stair count by 50% over what you were doing a year ago. And now I can give you data that helps you understand how, how much better you're doing. And, 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 you know, in our current workflow, that's not at all what we do, right? Yeah. So uh, that, that, hopefully, I don't know if that's too much detail, but hopefully no, that makes that's sense. Perfect. Uh, that's exactly it, uh, Sharat. It, it's, it's, that, it's that wider picture the broader deeper picture of of each patient as they walk into your door being able to make those more informed and thoughtful uh decisions that i think every physician i know every physician wants to make it's just right. a matter of exactly. how you do it right yeah exactly i mean for example we know that today if you look at the published literature you know get, depending on who you read it i can tell you what my personal experience was you know between 10 to 25% of patients who have a knee replacement in 2018 now coming on 2019 after surgery are not happy with their results mm. now what a tragedy that is in 2018 when we have this amazing you know technology that can you know where delta airlines can use an rfid tag on my luggage and track my bag, you know, what building is the bag in in Atlanta? Or I mean, it's just this amazing world that we can't do better than 20 to 25% dissatisfaction. That, that's, I would argue that's unacceptable, you know, yeah. in the year 2018 when we're investing all these resources. And so, you know, obviously we can go in a lot of detail, but those are the kind of things we can make better decisions if we understood from a sort of a longitudinal activity tracking standpoint, you know, people who do X activity uh, are, are probably too fun, even though their x-ray may look bad and they have arthritis by clinical exam, their activity level is so good that they're not going to be happy after surgery, right? Do you see what I mean? Those are Absolutely. the kind of decisions we can make using, you know, and so I think delivering the promise of wearables and, and things of that nature 
is really going to require us to be thoughtful around you know pretty specific use cases like what I'm describing here, where there's actual tangible clinical value tied to a specific you know pathology as opposed to more general just sort of fitness apps and things like that, right? And again, we can talk more in detail uh, to the level you're interested. Love it. No, I think this is this is wonderful. And and you know, uh, folks, we we're diving into to some of the ideas of you know what can we do to optimize that that UX that UI for patients and doctors. Ultimately, better care is better business, and we need to be doing more of that. And so, I love your examples, Sharat. And and so. Every every successful person that that uh, I get the privilege to to chat with also has a good setback story or two. Would love if you could uh, share a time when you had a setback and what you learned from it that's made you better. Gosh, I, we need about a ten hour interview. We, I need to be your <laughs> guest for the next. Uh, it's been a sort of a series of setbacks with a couple of intermittent successes in there that have, that have been sort of you know the gosh. I, I, I'm trying to think where to start. I um. Uh, uh, let me just think for a moment, if I may. I mean, I'll give you sort of one professional sort of setback, and this will maybe resonate with people. I'm guessing many of your, I don't know your listener sort of um, profile, but I'm guessing you have a fair amount of you know clinician types and, and others yeah. in, in medical industry, med device folks who listen. So I'll tell you my story. So when I decided to leave clinical practice, uh, now you know full time practice now coming on four years. I can't believe it's been four years already. I mean, I was you know I had a pretty busy practice. I was doing pretty well financially. You know, I, I I had five sales reps following me around every day. You know, I felt like I was the man. Right? I was king of the hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had, a, I had a long wait list of patients, et cetera. And, you know, what I, I left that, you know, probably for better or for worse, uh, crazily sort of walked away from that life and uh, decided to go to the consulting firm, McKinsey & Company, and start become a, a healthcare consultant. And I thought, you know, McKinsey is just amazing you know, again, most of your listeners will probably have heard of McKinsey and Company, you know, kind of Absolutely. one of the elite. And again, by some clerical error, I was able to get a job there, uh, <laughs> probably in a survey. But uh, I remember starting the job and, you know, essentially forget lateral move. I mean, this was a, a significant, I mean, I took a, I, you know, your, your listeners will be shocked. I took an 80% pay cut, 85% pay cut from, mm. from, yeah. And so, you know, you can imagine, but not only that, you know, I was, you know, 36 years, 37 years old, and I had had a pretty successful career as a clinician. And I go to this consulting firm to learn how to do consulting. And I didn't even really know what that was when I arrived at the firm. And, you know, here I now have to learn how to use Excel and PowerPoint. And I have a, you know, a, a boss who's a 30 year old graduate from, you know, Harvard Business School. Yeah. And, you know, telling me that my PowerPoint fonts are not correct and that my bullet points on the, <laughs> you know, I was like, well, do you, you know, just two weeks ago, I was putting somebody's pelvis back together, oh you know, and they were gosh. bleeding, you know, the, the blood was yeah. hitting the ceiling. And, you know, here we, but, you know, I'll tell you the set, there was a real setback in the sense that in my first six months or so, I had always been used to being very successful. You know, I was a good student. I had good board scores and good, you know, SAT scores, right? I had, I had a lot mm-hmm. of success and I wasn't yeah. used to going into an environment. You know, what okay. I'm saying is as a physician, as a physician, we have the benefit of sort of leading by authority and licensure, right? When I'm in an office setting or I'm in an operating room, because I have the white coat and because I have the license, I can basically tell you to jump off a bridge and you'll say, oh, doctor, that sounds great, you know, you people. But, yeah. but yeah. I, it, was a, it was a big setback for me to learn that in business and in consulting, you can't lead that way, even though you may have the most knowledge and, you know, have spent the most time studying in business, you know, everybody gets an equal vote. And so it took me a long time to learn, uh, you know, and so my first six months at my McKinsey yeah. were, uh, were, were extremely 
you know, discouraging. And I thought, what the hell have I done here? Yeah. And so it just took a real sort of swallowing of pride. And, you know, wow. you know surgeons have no shortage of, of big egos, but, you know, it was a really <laughs> great learning experience to learn how to lead by influence and by, you know, by data and, and, and sort of letting people come to conclusions on their own rather than by trying to, you know, edict to them or, 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 you know, or, or instruct them because you have the license and the white coat. Hmm. That was a big learning experience. And that's just one of many setbacks I can, you know, I can share with you. Uh, and, but a great learning experience, you know? Sure. And, and, uh, really appreciate you sharing that. And, and I'm, I'm sure you could hear the, the listeners like, why did he do that? What was he thinking? So maybe you could share. So, so why did you do it? What was your motivator for that move? So, you know, I'll tell you, I mean, even to this day, you know, again, I've had a very short business career and I continue to learn every day. It's been amazing. But um, my clinical life, you know, the whatever the two to 3,000 patients I operated on during my career is always going to be, other than having a son and getting married and having a family, the most meaningful experience of my life. I mean, I have patients yeah. that I did surgery on nine years ago that still call me and say, hey, Sherat you know, just want to say hello. I mean, it's just amazing. Right. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. so I, this has a moral. The reason I walked away from that was because I, at some point I realized that I couldn't scale myself any more than my own individual number of hours in the day times the number of surgeries I could do in an hour. And I, I couldn't really affect greater change in the healthcare system. And so I guess I had, we'll call it arrogance or, or, or psychosis, whatever you want to call it, to, um, to, to think that I, I could make a bigger impact on the healthcare system if I actually left the one-to-one, one-by-one patient care uh, workflow and sort of hopefully take, I guess I took a bet on the fact that taking a big clinical body of experience and moving that over into business would allow me to affect a lot more people positively than me individually cranking out, you know, hip and knee replacements every day. So that was really sort of the motivation and, you know, the, the, the moral, the, uh, sorry, the, the end of the story still not known yet, but so far it's been a great journey. Uh, but that hopefully that answers your question. It and does. I certainly still do miss operating, but, but, you know, this has been a great learning experience as well. You know, I feel fortunate to have been able to work at some great places and, and get some of these great experiences in business. Sharat, what a great, uh, what a great story. And thanks for, for answering that. Absolutely. You've taken that leap of faith. I know that, uh, with the work, the early work you you're doing, um, you're, you're seeing results and your impact will definitely be expanded. So kudos to you and, and for the listeners thinking about this move. Hey, it's not a bad move. You just have to be, you just have to be patient, vigilant, be willing to work through the downs and truck away. But ultimately, uh, a good inspirational story by Sherrod. Thanks for sharing that, Sherrod. And I mean, it's less, it's just, you know, as I was hearing you talk, I mean, one last thing I would say is, yeah, the you know the business side of healthcare. You know, if you, if you follow you know the insurance market and the medical device. I mean, those companies don't have enough, you know, and I'll just come clean here, enough clinicians who sort of understand the day-to-day challenges of taking care of patients. And so I guess I just make a plea that the health tech industry and the payer industry and the med device industry is in desperate need of folks who sort of are willing to take this amazing uh, body of clinical work that they've done and bring it over. And it'll be a hard transition, but I think it'll be worth it because um, the industry needs it. So uh, to develop products that, that actually ha- are meaningful and useful, uh, the industry desperately needs it. So, hey, and, from, and certainly that, 
certainly the wearable sort of device industry, you know, you can see that we've, you know, we've not really proven the use case yet, right? The promise of wearables are going to cure cancer and all things that ail humanity. We certainly aren't there yet, right? And so I think having some more clinicians to, uh, to do that work will help us create better products. So there you have it, listeners, a call to action. If you're a clinician looking to get into the business, and also if you're a business leader looking to make a bigger impact, taking a look at clinicians as collaborators into the projects that you have going on. Uh, Sharon, what, what about one of your proudest leadership moments you've had in, in healthcare? What is it? So let's see again, you know, like I said, it's been a series of failures with a couple of sprinkled successes in there. So I'll try to think of a, I mean, I think I have to say my proudest moment was probably, you know, on, um, on October 15th of this year, I think it was a Tuesday or Monday, if I remember, mm-hmm. uh, we had the big press release of the, you know, the, the Zimmer Biome and Apple kind of um, collaboration. It was really, uh, it was just an amazing thing to be able to sit back and sort of celebrate the success of, you know, what we had created, you know, this, this sort of clinically meaningful product that actually has has a use case. And, and, you know, again, if you've read, if you read the press release, you know, we're doing this gigantic clinical study using the app that was built. And, and, you know, it was just a, an awesome moment to be able to be part of a team, you know, sort of collaborating two companies with, you know, very different sort of DNA, right? If you think about a consumer electronics company versus a, you know, a traditional med device, you know, kind of a divergent personalities and, um, to have been able to be, you know, just a a contributor to that effort and and be a part of that team that, that sort of, um, got that, that product built in a pretty short time and built this clinical study that's really designed to show, uh, the, the clinical benefit, right, in a way that other clinical studies have not done. It was pretty awesome. You know, that was, that was a pretty satisfying, um, satisfying moment. Uh, it, it was pretty great. That's cool. Yeah, you know, you're moving the needle, Sharat, in your in your mission. You know, four years ago, you wanted to make a broader impact, and uh, you're you're definitely moving the needle with that project, <laughs> and so uh, and in many other ways. So I, I give you big kudos for that, and starting to see the fruits of your labor come to fruition. What would you say an exciting project or focus you're working on today is? So, so moving forward, uh, you mean in the current, you mean currently at, at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, some other things that I have a very, very strong interest in, and this will get a little bit technical, but um, I, I hope you'll, you'll find it interesting uh, and the listeners will as well. Again, you know, I spent a significant part of my life sort of learning orthopedics and learning how to put uh, hip and knee replacements in, in people. And, you know, for the listeners who, you know, maybe don't know a lot about that topic, if you sort of think about our, the, the, the way we implant, so let's just, let me, I guess, let me give an analogy. I don't know a lot about the auto industry from what I understand, you know, robotics and sort of, you know, automation to be able to improve the quality and the speed of delivery of the um, uh, of the car on the assembly line has come light years since the 1970s and 60s and, and 80s, you know. And same thing in, in orthopedics, believe it or not. Essentially, today in 2018, we still do hip and knee replacements more or less the same way we've done them. And this is, I'm talking about inside in the surgery itself, right, during the operation. Sure that we did in 1985. We haven't changed things all that much. It's pretty shocking, right? That's a 33-year period where we still use sort of, not to get early, but we use manual sort of instruments and we sort of eyeball things. And, you know, you could argue that given all the technology we have, that's insane, right? (laughs) um, So, you know, some of the stuff I'm very passionately working on is um, 
I am interested in sort of using various types of sensors and and again I can get as technical as you think the listeners would be interested in uh, of improving uh, our ability. So I'll, I'll give me an example. So again, if, if any of you've ever watched a hip or knee replacement, the, the way we do a knee replacement, right? You, you open the knee up, and you, you're, you're essentially doing woodwork, right? You're making yeah. bone cuts and 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 sort of you know cementing on these components. And the way we do it now is uh, we we essentially use eyeball, you know, our eyes, and we sort of open the knee up, look at the size of the of the patient's you know the thigh bone and the, and the shin bone. And we use some sort of, imagine sort of specialized rulers, right? Essentially, they're like little measuring tapes that we use that are all manual. And we measure, you know, front to back and side to side how big someone's knee is. And we say, okay, that's about a size four. It sounds, I'm, I'm guessing for you and most of the, the <laughs> listeners, it sounds massively archaic. And not only that, the other thing that's complex, remember, when we do a knee replacement, we're taking out sort of the bone that that was that that uh, that we biologically, you know, that, that was sort of um, that, that we were born with and that grew over the years, and we're replacing it with metal and plastic uh, implants. Well, remember, we also have structures inside the knee that are called ligaments, right? That are they, like the, the ACL that you probably heard of that many sports uh, athletes have injured, and we have other ligaments inside the knee. Well, believe it or not, in 2018, 2019, we don't really have many great systems that help us sort of digitize what I described to you as sort of a visual function of measuring the, the, you know, the measuring tape, the front to back, side to side dimensions of a knee, nor do we have any kind of electronic sensor that tells us, you know, what the ligaments will, how they will behave uh, after the knee replacement. Contrast that with your, you know, your Jeep Cherokee or your latest edition Audi A6 that has a sensor that can tell you when the, the, the uh, right. If, if you think about that, right. I mean, it's just yeah. amazing yeah. that we have all this technology. So one of my big it's passions amazing. is, is, is using, you know, sensors and when I can be specific, you know, pressure sensors and electronics and sort of navigation systems that allow us to sort of paint the knee with a, you know, imagine taking a scanner, like, uh, for example, putting the knee on a scanner and getting the size, you know, digitized and then having the exact dimensions of the implant and also being able to tell in real time, similar to the way the four, uh, four wheel drive vehicle can go into snow mode versus, you know, dry road and doing that in real time and then putting the implants in based on that. That's some of the stuff that, that we're working on. And then secondarily to tie this back to sort of the, um, the, uh, the, the wearables world, what better way to determine how much better people do after sort of this new way versus the old, you know, carpentry, you know, kind of method mm-hmm. than putting an accurate activity tracker like an Apple Watch on somebody and then having two groups, right? You have one group of patients that had the old way of putting it in and one group that has a new way of putting it in. And within 60 days of them walking around and tracking their activity, we can prove whether or not group B that had the new methodology of implantation using the sensors and the, and the you know, the digitized uh, scanning of the knee versus group A, we can tell immediately that group B is walking, you know, faster, more steps a day. You know, it's very quantitative. And so that's some of the stuff that uh, is pretty interesting uh, and I think will allow us to sort of, you know, go to the next level of, um, of patient satisfaction and patient activity uh, after these operations that traditionally people thought, well, my life is over, right? I can't, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to have a knee replacement. I may be pain-free, but I'll be, you know, wheelchair, I'll be sitting in, a, in the recliner, right? Watching the price is right <laughs> for the rest of my life. We hope we can change that to where people can actually go back to doing sports and doing, you know, doing more activity because the knee is positioned so much better in three dimensions than we could previously do. So that's some of the stuff that hopefully that's not too, um, geeking out too much Super but you can tell exciting. it's uh, stuff that's uh, stuff that i really find interesting and it's real right <laughs> stuff that we're actually building now 
and and you know hopefully soon we'll have uh, deliverables that fit where we can actually implant them that way. So that's been pretty exciting. No, that is, and and you know that that number that you mentioned earlier in the episode twenty twenty five percent dissatisfaction. Love that you're hyper focused to to changing that and um, and also broadening your impact through your work. So this has been a ton of fun, Sharad. I've I've really really have enjoyed our time together. If you can, I'd love if you could just uh, share a favorite book and then a closing thought, and we could wrap it up. So let's see, favorite book. I I do pride myself as being somewhat of an avid reader, so I think the book that most recently has had a big impact on me. There's a book called An American Sickness that was written. I forgot the physician who wrote it. Certainly, uh-huh. you know, the listeners can look it up. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially a book that talks about all the perverse incentives in America. And I'm not going to call out, you know, I realize this is a big audience that probably listens to this. I don't want to call out any particular industries or anything, but it just talks about sort of how this American healthcare system, as you know, mm-hmm. we spend upwards of 20 to 22% of our GDP on healthcare. And yet our life expectancy is actually declining, not going up yeah. for what we're spending. This book really in a way that I've not seen with other books sort of lays out for, you know, for folks who want to understand better, why is, why are our insidious sort of incentives you know, perversely set up to sort of increase cost, but not really deliver, you know, the value that we should. It, it lays it out in a way that I think the lay person can understand very well. And so it, it's just a great read. And again, I, I can look up the name of the author, but it's called An American Sickness. It was published in 2016, I think. And uh, just, just a great, you know, read um, on the topic of why our costs are so out of control and, you know, what patients can do, what consumers of healthcare can do to improve, you know, uh, because I guess I'm sort of a little cynical. I think the consumer is going to have to be the one <laughs> that, that that changes healthcare. I don't, I don't know that any of our current industry uh, players will do it in the way that a consumer maybe could do it. So it's, uh, a, good, it's a good call out, Sherrod. American sickness, folks. Take a take a read of that. Uh, I had a couple other guests recommend uh, Bitter Pill, which is in the same kind of thought process. So definitely one that uh, I'll add to my list, Sherrod. Thank you for that, listeners. Go to outcomesrocket.health and look up Sharat. That's S-H-A-R-A-T Kusuma, K-U-S-U-M-A. And uh, you're going to find it in there. Uh, type, type it in the search bar, Sharat. You'll find the entire transcript as well as links to the things that we've discussed. Sharat, give us a closing thought and send us home, man. I mean, closing thought, as I will say, is the following. Having had the chance to work at Apple and consumer electronics is just amazing and just computing in general, how much those products have improved. You know, people in healthcare talk a lot of why, I'll say whine a lot about margins and declining prices for drugs and implants and things. But if you sort of look at the computer industry as an alternate universe, think of the amount of value they're delivering, the amount of innovation they're delivering, it's essentially a declining cost year after year after year, yet they just continue to be profitable. I would argue that in healthcare, you know, we should have more of a view of we need to innovate our way to better, more cost-effective solutions and stop whining about margins a bit because, you know, the airplane industry, the computer industry have accomplished some pretty amazing things in terms of, you know, computing speed and the safety of taking a flight now. I would love us in the healthcare industry to have a little more of a kind of a view of of, of not whining about our margins and really innovating our way to, to better products for people, you know, and so that's, that's sort of my impassioned uh, message. I love that. Uh, so... It's a great message, Sharat. And um, folks, so 
let's take these words and turn them into action um, because they're definitely some heartfelt and uh, action-focused thoughts by Dr. Sharat Kusuma. And so, Sharat, just want to say a final thank you for joining us and uh, really looking forward to staying in touch with you. Awesome. Thank you for the, you know, I appreciate the opportunity and you know, great. I commend you for, you know, having these topics uh, on this podcast. It's great. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.